You are listening to Training Our Minds to Think God's Thoughts After Him, a podcast by Pastor Ben Bessett. Taking a look at WEC number 17, the historical introduction to TULIP. So when we're getting in the conversation between Arminianism and Calvinism, there's more between it that agrees than disagrees. There are many good Arminian theologians. There are many good Arminian Christian pastors, many good Arminian evangelists. So when we start this discussion and we get to dissect the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism and why we hold to what we do in the Reformed community, we want to start out by stating that there are good Arminian Christians. Both hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. Both hold to the literal historical Jesus and his bodily resurrection, his deity, substitutionary atonement, the Trinity, the reality of heaven, hell, and eternal punishment. So both sides hold to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. The difference comes in now, as we're going to see, is the difference between the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. Both sides see this on a slightly different path. We both agree that they're taught in Scripture, but each group defines the sovereignty of God a little bit different. And this is where the difference becomes between the Arminian and the Calvinist, and it even drops off further with the open theist, how a person views the sovereignty of God and the providence of God is going to determine the theological position in this debate. So in starting out with TULIP, from the Reformed perspective, what we say is the doctrine of grace is at the heart of the matter. So if we don't understand that there is nobody who is righteous, there is no one who does good, there is nobody who seeks God, If we don't first understand this, we will never understand our full need for God's grace. Grace defined is the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man, bestowed on sinners who deserve wrath, brought about through the agency of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be unmerited? Sinners, all sinners since the fall, deserve God's wrath. So grace is not earned, grace is not deserved, grace is free in the sense that God is choosing to freely give it to whom he wants. This being said, God decides to withhold it from whom he wants as well. God's grace cannot be demanded. God is not unjust if he does not give everybody saving grace. He does not have to. He doesn't have to give a single person saving grace, but he chooses to give it to some. That's in the Reformed position. We must understand the nature of God's grace. Do we all possess God's grace and choose to control its operation? Or does God sovereignly administer his grace on whom he ever chooses? This is the difference between the two positions. The Arminian position is going to hold to God chooses to give it to everybody, and the final choice is based upon the individual or in the Reformed position, God sovereignly administers it to whom he wants, and it's going to be 100% effectual to the elect. So questions to consider. 
How is salvation by grace achieved? And you see here on the format, you can read page two here. These questions here, how you answer these questions will determine how you view the sovereignty of God and salvation. The dynamic between the sovereignty of God and his providence and how it relates and functions in accordance to human free will. This has been a debate that goes back thousands of years. Theologians and philosophers of like have debated this about, but what we're going to be taking a look at now is just the history of this debate between Calvinists and Arminians. It doesn't start with the Reformation. Theological differences that separate the Calvinist and the Arminian go back over 1,500 years. So the debate did not begin with John Calvin and Jacob Arminius in the 16th century. Rather, this goes all the way back. You can trace remnants of this back to Augustine and Pelagius, as we're going to see. Clearly taught between those two individuals, the difference between those two positions. Also going back to some letters such as First Clement and others that mention predestination and God's elect. So John Calvin, who was he? Well, 1509 to 1564 is when he lived. One of the greatest theologians to come out of the Reformation. And we hear the acronym TULIP when we talk about the doctrines of grace. It's often attributed to him, but it did not originate with John Calvin. Calvin and the Reformers were the ones who held the theological positions of Augustine in regards to predestination, human nature, and the character of God. So we could go back a thousand years. John Calvin did not invent predestination as many people like to claim he did not do that. Anybody who understands church history would not say that. Many people think Calvinism began with John Calvin in the 16th century. It goes back and you can trace its theological line from First Clement to Augustine and others as we're going to see. So the reformers held to what's known as monergism. Monergism is salvation being completely an act of God alone. God saves an individual from start to finish. Moving on to Jacob Arminius, he lived from 1560 to 1609. He came at the end of the Reformation, and notice when John, Jacob Arminius was born, Calvin was already, let's see, Calvin died in 1564, so Jacob Arminius was four years old when Calvin died. So they didn't have interaction, so Jacob Arminius came after, and this debate came after as well. So Jacob Arminius came after the Reformation, and he challenged the Reformers' interpretation of predestination and the sovereignty of God. Arminius and his contemporaries held to what's known as synergism. Salvation being an act of God and the cooperation of man at the same time. So God extends his grace. The individual by his free will must receive that grace and continue in that grace. So we have these two words here, monergism and synergism. Monergism from the Calvinist side, saving faith is a result of being united to Christ. God does all the work. Man believes as a result of God's grace alone. God works faith in the individual and saves him and unites that person to himself. We believe because we first have been elected and saved. Whereas synergism teaches that saving faith is the act that unites ones to Christ one person to Christ, and what it does is an uh, individual's free will act of saving faith is the determining factor. God extends his grace. The individual receives what God gives. It's a two-way street. Notice the word synergism. They're working together, where monergism is one, God working down and saving the individual. 
So the theology of the Reformers did not originate with John Calvin or Martin Luther. Calvin and Luther went back to the scriptures. Calvin and Luther went back to the early church fathers and back to the Greek and back to the Hebrew. This was the emergence of humanism in the 16th century, not to be confused with secular humanism of today. What they did is they went back to the original languages. They studied the works and they started studied the writings of the early church fathers. As the Roman Catholic Church was growing in its strength and its popularity and as its traditions were being more developed, it was getting away from Scripture and more towards man-made tradition. So what Calvin and Luther did is they reformed the church not by creating something new, but they reformed the church by going back to where it started. And in doing so, they arrived at a systematic theology from Scripture that honored the covenantal structure, so the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and also it honored the sovereignty of God in all things, which was beginning to become more and more convoluted as sacred tradition and everything else was taking away from what the scriptures were teaching, which is why it needed to be reformed. So the theology that emerged from Arminius and the Remonstrance did not originate with them either. Church history demonstrates both that monergism and synergism go back to the early days of the church. So the question that we want to answer in this study of the doctrines of grace and tulip is which one is biblical, monergism or synergism? And us in the Reformed community believe monergism is what's correctly taught in Scripture. So the remonstrance itself. Jacob Arminius died in 1609. 1610, the Arminian party issued a document, or what's known as the Remonstrance, and thereafter was commonly known as the Remonstrance. After Arminius's death, 46 leading Dutch ministers and laymen composed a document known as the Remonstrance, and it summarized Arminius and their objection and opposition to rigid Calvinism and the Remonstrants and the followers of Arminius are actually the ones who first came up with five points. So we're used to hearing the five points of Calvinism. We're used to hearing Tulip and the doctrines of grace. That came after the Remonstrants. The Remonstrants came first in 1610. So the document itself that the Remonstrants produced contained five articles dealing with the issues under the debate. And those issues in this first article defines predestination in ambiguous terms, for it affirms that God determined before the foundation of the world that those who would be saved who believe in Christ. So predestination is defined differently by an Arminian than it is by a Calvinist. So what we're seeing here is the open decree of predestination there's two ways of looking at it, or two schools of thought on how the Bible teaches this. We have the Reformed doctrine of predestination, and we have the Arminian doctrine of predestination. So whenever we have two different positions being presented, they both can't be true. One can be right, or they both can be wrong, but they both cannot be true. So there is no neutrality here when it comes to predestination. We both define it in a different manner. 
The Reformed doctrine of predestination teaches God having, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, entered a covenant of grace with them to redeem them out of a state of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation through a Redeemer. So notice, there are elected individuals and there is a covenant of grace that redeems these elected individuals only. As we're going to see, the Redeemer comes to redeem, that's Christ, these individual people only. He doesn't come to die for every single person. He comes to die for every single ethnic group, specific individuals within that ethnic group. So that's the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. The Arminian Doctrine of Predestination teaches all who God foresees will accept his offer of salvation are the ones whom God predestined. So basically put, according to the Arminian doctrine of predestination, God foresees who's first going to choose him. So God looks down the corridors of time, and what he sees is a condition in the individual. It's known as God's electing foreknowledge. He foresees those who are going to believe in him. Those are those who God predestines according to the Arminian doctrine. So the Reformed doctrine of predestination, God elects some before the foundation of the world. The Arminian doctrine of predestination is God foresees who first is going to believe in him, and those are the elect. This ambiguity is consistent within the final paragraph of the Remonstrance, which declares that this is all that is needed for salvation, meaning faith, foreseen faith, and that it is neither necessary nor useful to rise higher nor to search any deeper. So what basically the remonstrance was saying is the human act of free will is the final determining factor of an individual being elect or not, foreseen faith. So the remonstrance simply responded that the biblical teaching on this point is not clear and that they would need clearer scriptural proof before committing themselves to what the reformers taught and believed. So the split here on predestination, is it God alone or is it God and humanity working together for salvation? So the response to the remonstrance, the Arminian remonstrance of 1610, is known as the Canons of Dort. It produced the Synod of Dort produced the Canons of Dort. They met from 1617 to 1619, or as we see here on the form, specifically November of 1618 to May of 1619. So it's about seven months, looks like, that they met. This is where the five points of Calvinism was developed. The Dutch were almost 70 in number, roughly half were ministers, half were professors of theology, there were some who were lay leaders, so it's a mixed group here. And the main purpose of the gathering for the Synod of Dort was the condemnation of Arminianism. It was necessary in order to end the strife that was dividing the Netherlands and to secure the support of other Reformed churches. So this, this disagreement was heavy at the time, and it's still this way today in the United States. The majority of churches today are Arminian, or you would say, synergistic in their view of salvation, 
Mostly, this switch happened after the Civil War, during the 20th century. Prior to the Civil War, the majority of the United States was reformed in their doctrine of election, reformed in their understanding of predestination. After the Civil War, that all changed. Humanitarian free will, libertarian free will, became popular through the Enlightenment, the influence on the United States. Human nature naturally tends to think from a human perspective. It's just natural for us to think that I chose Christ, therefore I'm saved by my foreseen faith. Which, from our perspective, seems to make sense, but then when we read Scripture, we see from God's perspective, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So it precedes our act of faith. And the Arminian would respond, yeah, but God foresaw the faith. And the Calvinist would say, based upon what? How does an individual who doesn't seek after God, who is spiritually dead, come to Christ by faith? The Arminian would say, well, God helps him through prevenient grace. And the Calvinist would say, yeah, but he's still dead in his trespasses and sins. So prevenient grace brings you to a neutral state, but you're still spiritually dead. So it's a back and forth tennis match. And what it's based upon is the final determining factor in salvation. Is it God's choice of election based upon nothing but his mere good pleasure from all eternity? Or is it God foreseeing an individual who chooses out of his free will to embrace him to salvation? That's the difference. This debate doesn't start with Arminius and Calvin. It goes back 1,500 years, actually a 1,000 years after Calvin, or 1,500 years from today, between two people called Augustine and Pelagius. So many who attempt to refute or discredit Reformed theology, particularly the Reformed doctrine of predestination, they claim that this doctrine can be found nowhere in church history and started with Augustine in the 5th century. So let's just take a look here. This is going back to 96 A.D., Clement of Rome wrote a letter. Here is what it states in that letter. Day and night you were anxious for the whole brotherhood. Now notice this. That the number of God's elect might be saved with mercy and good conscience. So we're going back to the first century. And we're seeing in this letter of Clement of Rome, he mentions the number of God's elect might be saved. Notice also in Clement of Rome, he says, let us draw near to him with holiness of spirit, lifting up pure and undefiled hands unto him, loving our gracious and merciful Father, who, was, who has made us partakers in the blessings of his elect. Notice this. He has made us partakers in the blessings of his elect. Another quote, may God who sees all things and who is the ruler of all spirits and the Lord of all flesh, notice this, who chose our Lord Jesus Christ and us through him to be a peculiar people. So Clement of Rome, 96 AD, seems to be clearly teaching what the Reformed doctrine of predestination has always taught. Clement of Alexandria lived from 115 to two, 150 to 215. In his quote, he says, But in proportion to the adoption possessed by each, he has dispensed his benefice both to Greeks and barbarians. Notice here now what Clement of Alexandria is saying. God is extending his saving grace 
both to the Greeks and the barbarians. This is going outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, specifically to each ethnic group where the gospel comes into play, wherever the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists have reached. So continuing on this quote, it says, even to those of them that were what? Predestined and in due time called the faithful and the elect. So that's from Clement of Alexandria, who lived from 150 to 215 AD. Now we come to Augustine, 354 to 420 is when he lived. And he says, he, referring to God, has appointed them, referring to the people condemned in Adam, to be regenerated before they die physically, whom he predestined to eternal life as the most merciful giver of grace. To those whom he has predestined to eternal life, however, he is also the most righteous awarder of punishment, not only on the account of sins which they add in indulgence of their own will, but also because of their original sin, even if, as in the case of infants, they add nothing to it. So we're seeing predestination unto eternal life in this quote, and he also says predestined to eternal death, which we refer to as reprobation. And he also mentions original sin, the way he does. So Augustine is right on point with what the Reformation has taught regarding predestination. So this was Augustine, and Augustine had a debate within the 5th century with a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was born in Ireland 354 AD. Pelagianism derives its name from this British monk. And he engaged in a fierce debate with Augustine in the early 5th century. So what he was teaching during this time, Pelagius, that sin, grace, and predestination, according to Pelagius, sin was being something that is simply a bad habit. There is nothing wrong with human nature, according to Pelagius. Neither Adam's sin nor his guilt was transmitted to all humanity. All men were created as Adam before the fall. We have free will and full moral choice. Free will, he defines, as the ability to choose either good or evil. Notice he defines it as the ability to. This ability or possibility is due to the very essence of free will itself. By a person's own effort, they can achieve whatever is required of him in morality and religion. So for Pelagius, the command to obey implies the ability to obey. So if God commands it, every human being has the free will and the ability to carry it out. Salvation, according to Pelagius, is entirely by works. God gave us the ability, we just need to carry it out. Perfection is possible, and perfection is not only possible, it's mandatory. So Pelagianism, which is the theology that Pelagius espoused, was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. So we can see what the early church fathers and the early Christians thought of Pelagius. They thought of it as being heretical. So he is debating Augustine during this time. Augustine, again, being born in 354 in North Africa, and his influence is very strong. It's still felt to this day. He was the most quoted church father 
by John Calvin. So Luther and Calvin were heavily influenced by Augustine's teachings, which helped spark the Reformation, and interestingly so is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church takes Augustine where Augustine seems to agree with them, and the Reformation takes Augustine as well, but the part of Augustine that agrees with them. So Augustine can kind of be divided in half. And um, the theology of salvation and original sin, we took from Augustine, but there is a lot of what Augustine writes that agrees with what Rome teaches today. So there's a split. Both sides claim Augustine, but only the portion that they see fits with Scripture. So Augustine, on sin, grace, and predestination, taught that inability of the will in human nature to choose and repent. God commands us to repent. God commands us to believe. God tells us to make that choice because that is our human responsibility as image bearers of God. But just because God sets that as the standard does not mean that humanity has that ability to meet that standard. Pelagius taught that because God commands it, humanity can do it. Augustine says, yes, God commands this, but because of original sin and because of our spiritual deadness, we can't, nor will we want to. So Augustine defines original sin as being we are all condemned in the action of Adam in the garden. He connects Adam's sin to the fall of all humanity. Humanity is unable not to sin. We make free choices, but these free choices are limited according to our sinful desires. We do not have libertarian free will, as the Arminians would define it. Yes, we make choices. We're not robots, but we are slaves to the sin. We are slaves to the nature that we are born with. We are slaves with the nature that we have inherited from Adam. So our human nature is not inclined to do good, meaning it's not inclined to do good to the things that are pleasing to God. Grace is necessary, and grace is sufficient to change our hearts. Grace alone, not grace plus human free will, grace by itself. It is God's free grace by means of predestination in which God chooses to redeem a specific people, according to Augustine. And perfection is not achievable without it. So we see Pelagianism, semi-Pelagian, or Augustine, which is known as Augustinianism, and there is this middle ground here, which is referred to as semi-Pelagianism, which Jerome and John Cassian held to. And while not denying the necessity of grace for salvation, semi-Pelagianism maintains that the first steps towards the Christian life are ordinarily taken by the human will. Grace supervenes only later. So the individual has a desire to seek after God. When God sees that desire out of the human heart, he extends grace to that individual to overcome the sin nature that they have and be saved. So Arminianism teaches that the first steps of grace are taken by God. So it's not, Arminianism is not necessarily semi-Pelagian. Semi-Pelagian starts with man to God, 
what Arminianism teaches is it starts from God to man, but man has to make the final determining factor whether or not he wants to be saved. So God extends his grace. Now it's based upon human free will. That would be the Arminian position. The Reformed position is God sends his grace, saves the individual, and preserves the individual from start to finish. An individual believes because God has first chosen him, regenerated his, the person's heart, renewed their will, and because God works faith in his elect, every single individual who receives the saving grace of God believes. Because God, through the Holy Spirit, transforms the person from within. And when he does this, the individual instantly embraces the gospel as it's being preached. So there's a difference in the order. Interestingly, historically, the Synod of Orange condemned semi-Pelagianism in 529 AD. And through the Middle Ages, it's interesting as well, Thomas Aquinas lived 1225 to 1274 AD, known as the doctor of the church. Roman Catholic Church really embraces Thomas Aquinas. But interestingly, Protestants can benefit from him as well with his scholastic method. But not only that, it's interesting to see what he taught here. Notice what Thomas Aquinas says. He says, Thus, as men are ordained to eternal life through the providence of God, it is likewise, it likewise is part of that providence to permit some to fall away from that end. This is called reprobation. So notice what he's saying here. Thus, as men are ordained to eternal life through the providence of God. That's exactly what the Reformation taught. Likewise, the providence of God permits some to fall away to the end. This is called reprobation. This is the exact same thing that John Calvin believed. When we say double predestination, what we're saying is God ordains some to eternal life, but passes over others and allows them to continue on until condemnation. This is what Thomas Aquinas is saying here, that God ordains eternal life through his providence, and at the same time through his providence, permits some to fall away, which is, he even uses the word reprobation. Therefore, as predestination includes the will to confer grace and glory, so also reprobation includes the will to permit a person to fall into sin and to impose the punishment of damnation on account of that sin. Interesting. Thomas Aquinas teaching double predestination. Citing Ephesians 1.4, Aquinas says this, Accordingly, God's foreknowledge of people's faith and good works is ruled out as the basis for the divine election. So Ephesians 1.4 clearly teaches that God chose us to be in Christ. And the Arminians say the reason God did that is because he foresaw who would believe. But Aquinas is saying here, God's foreknowledge of people's faith and good works is ruled out as the basis for divine election. Exactly what the Reformers taught. Now appealing to Titus 3.5, Thomas Aquinas says, 
as God saved us, so he predestined that we should be saved. Therefore, foreknowledge of merits is not the cause or reason of predestination. So it's interesting how hard Rome embraces Thomas Aquinas, and at the same time, what we're seeing is Thomas Aquinas seems to be embracing the doctrine of predestination, election, and reprobation, just as Calvin and other reformers had taught. So we see this debate continuing now. We see the debate between Augustine and Pelagius. We see Thomas Aquinas affirming double predestination. Also in the history of the Calvinist-Arminian debate is the debate between Martin Luther and Desiderius Erasmus. Now, Luther being the founder of the Lutheran denomination through Philip Melanchthon, Desiderius Erasmus was a Roman Catholic. He was a Catholic scholar, a very brilliant man. There was a written debate that took place between Luther and Erasmus. It's known as The Bondage of the Will, which was written in 1525. Martin Luther debates Catholic scholar Desiderius Erasmus in regard to whether or not human beings are free to decide on good and evil. Luther holds to the Reformed doctrine of predestination, so he's a monergist. Erasmus holds to the cooperation of both man and God for salvation, so he is a synergist. So we see this debate about a hundred years before the Synod of Dort, which produced the Canons of Dort. This debate has a lot of historical examples, and this is just one of them. So what we see here in this debate, this written debate between Luther and Erasmus, Luther says this. He said, I pray and commend you highly for this also. He's speaking to Erasmus. That unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue. So what is the real issue? He says, the essence of the matter in dispute, and have not wearied me with the irrelevancies of the papacy, purgatory, indulgences, and such trifles, for they are trifles rather than basic issues. So Luther goes on to say, with which almost everyone hither though has gone hunting for me without success. You and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges, and have aimed at the vital spot for which I sincerely thank you, since I am only too glad to give as much attention to this subject as time and leisure permit. So what is Luther saying to Erasmus? That Erasmus understands the key issue that brought about the Reformation. And according to Luther, the key question which everything hinges, the vital spot that the Reformers broke away from the Roman Catholic Church about was this matter of monergism versus synergism. God alone, or grace plus works to salvation. This was the debate. This was the hinge point. Is human free will the final determining factor in the salvation of an individual, which the synergist thinks? And believes, or is it the monergist position where God chose his elect before the foundation of the world? So the monergism-synergism debate was between the Reformers and the Catholic Church. We see it in this written debate between Luther and Erasmus in 1525. 
Fast forward 100 years after that, the same debate is taking place at the Remonstrance. The Remonstrance versus the Synod of Dort. Monergism versus Synergism. So the Armenian and the Roman Catholic are in the same camp regarding libertarian free will. What we're going to see here are the five points of the Remonstrance are held both by Catholics and Arminians alike. So when we're taking a look at the Reformation, this is why it is so important to understand the history of this. Because if you're truly going to break away from Rome, as the Reformers did, you have to understand it through the perspective of the Reformers. We are breaking away from a human-centered faith in the sense that human free will is the final determining factor. And not only this, but this also carries over into other issues. The nature of God, the nature of humanity, the concept of original sin and how it affects us. Do we have free will or is our will bound by our sin? Is human nature totally depraved or is it just unable to do what God wants it to do and can be unable to do what it needs to do by God's provenient grace? Is God's election conditional or unconditional? Did Jesus die for every single individual in the world? Or did Jesus die for his elect only, which are contained in all ethnic groups? Is God's saving grace resistible or irresistible? Does an individual who receives the Holy Spirit maintained to the end is necessarily going to be saved? Or can an individual lose their salvation and lose the Holy Spirit through unbelief and sin. All of these theological matters have been debated about for the past 2,000 years, and we see them between Augustine and Pelagius, between Luther and Erasmus, between our Jacob Arminius and John Calvin, between the Remonstrants and the Synod of Dord. We see this all throughout church history, and even today in the 21st century, between a Reformed church and an Arminian church or a Reformed Church in Rome. This debate is the same debate that has been taking place for 2,000 years. Nothing is new here. What it hinges on is how we define the sovereignty of God, especially in salvation. Is it all of God or human nature plus the grace of God? That's what we'll be taking a look at. Thank you for listening to the Training Our Minds podcast by Pastor Ben Bessett. If you enjoyed listening, please follow and share this podcast with others. We appreciate your feedback, so leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. Thank you, and we'll see you on the next episode.